0: Hey, thanks for listening to Cornerstone Church. You can find us on the web at akcornerstone.org. And we want you to know it's our prayer that the Holy Spirit will use this message to either save you through the good news about Jesus Christ, grow you into the likeness of Jesus, or send you to proclaim Jesus in the Spirit's power. Church, would you please open up to the 12th chapter of Romans as we continue our study? Paul's letter to the church at Rome. Whenever we read or study the Word of God, we need to approach the Word of God with a mindset that seeks to take the truth that God has communicated and make application of that truth to our lives. So with that in view, one of the keys to Bible reading or Bible study is to be looking for the answer to this question. Every time that we read or study a passage, we should be trying to understand what the intent of the author that was inspired by the Spirit of God to write what he wrote, trying to understand what the intent of the author was in writing that passage of Scripture, said another way, what is the truth that the author was intending to communicate so that we could be changed by it. So, what I want to do this morning as we begin is I want to just take a few minutes to set the stage for Romans chapter 12, verse 9. Because what we need to do is we need to approach the ninth verse with an understanding of what Paul's goal is or is his intent for writing what he's writing here. So here's a, here's a quick couple sentence flyby of the first 11 chapters. Okay? What Paul did in Romans chapters 1 through 11 was that he wrote to us about the righteousness of God. Specifically, he wrote about how we, when we put our faith in Christ and in Christ alone, actually become the very righteousness of God. The divine, perfect righteousness of God. That's what we become positionally before God. God sees us when He regenerates us and calls us to Christ and we put our faith in Christ, He justifies us, makes us right with Himself and sees us as righteous as He sees His Son, Jesus Christ. That's why we have peace with Him through Christ. Then what happens in the 12th chapter is there's a major transition in the letter. The first 11 chapters are weighty doctrine and theology, setting up the truth about the righteousness of God. And then in chapter 12 and the last five chapters, the rest of the letter, it's application. And what Paul does in the last five chapters is he answers this question based upon what God has done in Jesus for us, how then? must we live. And so, what he does as he opens up the 12th chapter, I want to read to you verses 1 and 2 because that's what's going to set the stage for verse 9. As he begins this application section, what Paul does is he establishes this Great propositional truth that he's going to spend the rest of the letter expounding upon. So here's what he writes. Based upon what God has done in Jesus, he writes, Romans 12, 1 and 2, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So just a comment or two about that. You see, what we have here is Paul adding on to the truth of what happens to us at the moment of faith, at the moment of justification or salvation, is that we become righteous with the very righteousness of Christ positionally. That's where we stand before God. But here's the reality. We still live on this world. We still live on this globe. And we still have mortal bodies that have not yet been redeemed. And so we are in a battle. We are in a struggle. And the struggle is us trying to take this reality of who we are positionally before God in Christ, perfectly righteous and flesh it out in day-to-day practice, in the day-to-day things of life. And there's a battle there because our mortal body, our sinful self, is a seat of sin and it doesn't want to fully align and fully submit. So there's a struggle that's going on in us. And so what Paul does in the 12th chapter and on to the end of the letter is he comes alongside of us with truth to help us learn how to take that positional reality of who we are in Jesus and flesh it out in the practical day-to-day walk of life. And here is how he says that we should go about that Process. He says the only way, verse 1, the only proper response to what God has done for you and me in Jesus Christ is a life of daily worship. And the way that that happens, verse 2, is that we have to be transformed. And the way that we're transformed is through the renewing of our mind. So there's this great truth that he is going to spend the next five chapters unpacking. You and I, as followers of Jesus, need to have our minds renewed with truth so that our lives can be transformed so that we can live for the glory of God in day-to-day worship. Do you see the sequence there? We need our minds renewed so that our lives can be transformed so that we can live day in and day out for the glory of God. That's what the rest of the letter is about, giving us the truth that we need so that our minds can be renewed, so that our lives can be transformed, so we can live for God's glory. And so what he does in the rest of this letter It's really neat when you see the overall outline beginning in verse 3 of chapter 12 down to verse 8, he starts talking about relationships because all of life is about relationships. And so verse 3 down to verse 8 of chapter 12, he talks about how we're supposed to relate to ourselves. He gives us the truth to renew our minds so that our lives can be transformed on how we are to relate to ourselves. We covered that in the last few weeks. Then beginning in Verse 9, all the way down to verse 21, the rest of chapter 12, he talks to us about how to relate to the world, to other people. First of all, how we're to relate to other believers. Verses 9, I think, down to verse 12 or 13. And then the rest of the chapter, how we'll relate to those, how we are to relate to those who persecute us, mistreat us. And then what he does in chapter 13. Is he talks to us about how to relate to those that are in leadership over us, the government. And then in chapter 14, how we're to relate to those who are weaker in the faith than us and so on. So what the letter is about from chapter 12 verse 3 and on is the unpacking of chapter 12 verse 2. Renewed thinking that brings about life transformation so that we can live for God's glory. So with that in view, let's pick it up at verse 9. We're going to cover the rest of the message. We're going to cover verse 9 and try to swim down in deeply to the truth that is here. And there's some deep, powerful truth that's here. Romans chapter 12 Verse 9, Paul writes, Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Paul, beginning this new subsection, verses 9 down to verse 21, he does what he commonly does throughout the letter. He starts quite Regularly, new subsections with a truth that sets up the rest of the section that he's going to unpack in the verses that follow. And that's exactly what he does here in verse 9. And he begins by saying to those who are followers of Christ, here is the way that we are to relate to other people. We are to have love that is genuine abhorring what is evil, holding fast to what is good. First of all, let's look at that phrase, let love be genuine. Some of your translations might say, let your love be sincere. What the literal rendering in the Greek is, first of all, love, it's agape. It's That word for love that is God's kind of love, that is perfect love, holy, pure, unconditional love, that we as Christians are to love like God loved us. Now why does Paul begin with love? As he begins to tell us how to relate to the rest of our world, why does he begin with love? Well, love is preeminent. That's why. You know it's really interesting? If you Put Romans chapter 12 up next to 1 Corinthians 12 and 13. In Romans chapter 12 verses 3 to 8, he's talking about spiritual gifts. And then in verse 9, he goes into love. The same pattern is followed in Romans chapter 12 and verse in chapter 13. In chapter 12, he's talking about spiritual gifts. And then he moves into the 13th chapter, and it's the chapter, the great chapter on love. That's what he does right here consistently in Romans chapter 12. And he begins with love. He is telling us that the very essence of the Christian life is to be a life that is lived in love. And just think about how that's fleshed out all through Scripture. Jesus Christ, it is his life that gives us the picture of a life of perfect love, right? Jesus is the life. He is the life that lived in perfect love. We are to follow his example of love. That's the mode of operation by which Jesus lived. And the work, that the Spirit of God is doing in us is He is seeking to grow us up into, as followers of Christ, the kind of love that Jesus had. That's the work of the Spirit. That's the fruit He wants to produce. Listen to Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love. And then here's what that'll look like joy, peace, patience. Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. So why are we to begin in the Christian life in relationship to the rest of our world with a foundational truth on love? Listen to Romans chapter 13 verse 10. Here's what Paul is going to write in the next chapter about that foundational truth of love. Listen, Romans 13:10. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. You see, if we would just love as God loves, what we would do is always have others' best interest at heart. We would do whatever we do in relationship to other people with the desire to bless them, not for our own interest, but we would put others' interest above our own so that all of the law of God in our action toward them would be fulfilled if we would just live out a God kind of love for them. That's why love is the fulfillment of the law. That word there for genuine, let love be genuine, here's the literal translation. It means let love be without hypocrisy. Let love be without hypocrisy. The etymology or history of that word, if you trace it back to ancient times, you get the word in Latin from which we get our word sincerity from. And here's the history of that. Those that would, in the marketplace of the ancient world, sell pottery. What began to happen as a common practice was jars of pottery that had blemishes or cracks in them they would take wax and put that wax in the cracks and color it to the same color as the pottery jar so that you couldn't see the imperfections or the blemishes or the cracks in the pottery and therefore could get a higher price for the jar of pottery that was being sold. And because it was a common practice, what begin to happen was those that were merchants that were selling their pottery they would stamp them with a latin phrase two words and the phrase that they would stamp on those pottery jars was sincera s i n e c e r a it's the word from which we get sincerity from and it meant without wax Without wax. It means that what is on the inside is to be the same as what is on the outside. There's to be no hypocrisy in our love. We're not to put on an external front in the way that we relate to other people, but inside, in our heart, in our motives, in our desires, have self-in-view, or something other than their best interest at heart. Because if we did that, it would be a love of hypocrisy. It wouldn't be a love that's sincere or a love that was genuine. And what the calling of the Christian life is, is we're to love as Christ loved us. We're to love with agape love, which is a love without hypocrisy, which is a love that is sincere and a love that is genuine. then here's the transition. What you can do is you can take the first half of verse 9 and set it next to the second half of verse 9 with this understanding. Part B of verse 9 qualifies and unpacks part A. So part A says... That the essence of the Christian life is to be a God kind of love toward other people that is without hypocrisy. And the second half of verse 9 says, and here is what that looks like. And here is what it looks like. That we are to abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good. And the reason I know that Those are to be connected is because in the Greek syntax of the section, the sentence there, that abhorring and holding fast are participles that are defining or qualifying the love that's in the first part of the verse. They're to be connected. In other words, your love is to be without hypocrisy. It's to be genuine. And here's what genuine love looks like. Genuine love, God kind of love toward other people is love that abhors evil and clings to what is good or holds fast to what is good. That's a God kind of love. So what I want to do in the last part of this message is I want to draw out three truths that I believe are in part B of verse 9. Three truths Critical truths that are included in those words, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, as a definition for a love that is sincere without hypocrisy. And here's the first truth. Good and evil are defined by God. Good and evil are God-defined. I want you to add the words here when I point to you. Abhor what is and hold fast to what is. Just say those two together. First, and then, there is an evil and there is a good. I'm just going to let that settle in for a moment. There is an evil And there is a good. There is a reality beyond us, outside of us, independent of us, that is evil. And a reality beyond us, outside of us, and independent of us, that is evil. Meaning, good and evil are not determined by what we think good or evil is. Good and evil are not defined by what we like and what we don't like. Good and evil are not classified by what we enjoy and what we don't enjoy. Let me say it in a positive way. Good and evil are objective. They're not subjective. They're not open for definition. They've already been defined. They are fixed, they're not flexible. They are established, they're not up for grabs. God is the one that defines good and evil. We are to line up with what God has defined, not to define it for Him. There's got to be at least one person that thinks that's worth an amen. (laughs) So what Paul is teaching us here, I'm going to keep this before us. What Paul is teaching us here is how to relate toward good and evil. We are to abhor evil and hold fast to good in the way that we relate to other people. You see, this passage... The context is how we relate to other people. It's not just about a generalization of good and evil. The context is our love is to be genuine or sincere. The way that we love other people is to be genuine or sincere. And what that looks like in relationship to other people, please don't miss that, it's not just in relationship to good and evil by themselves. What The way that looks in relationship to good and evil, how we relate to others, is we are to abhor evil in our relationship to others and we are to hold fast to good in our relationship and how we relate to other people. But the first truth here is that Good and evil are God-defined. And the second truth, that leads us into the second truth. And here's the second truth. How we relate toward good and evil impacts other people outside of us. It doesn't just affect us. It impacts other people outside of us. How we as an into, how Brad Suter relates to evil and how Brad Suter relates to good impacts the people that I'm around. Now, let me try to explain what I mean by that and how that works. Evil, in its very genesis. Go all the way back to the garden. Evil in its very genesis is what brought pain and heartache and trouble and brokenness and destruction into the world. Right or wrong? That's true. It's evil that brings destruction and pain. Sin damages, sin hurts. Sin breaks. And that campaign of pain and destruction that started in the garden is still rolling around the globe today as evil continues. It brings pain and destruction and heartache and brokenness. That's what evil does. It's His very nature to do that. Wherever it's found, that's what it does. It's not isolated by itself. It infects. It impacts. Let's go to the good side. It's good that brings help and health and blessings. Ultimately, the epitome of good is who? Jesus is the good man, right? He's really the only one good man. You want to know what good is in a life? It's the person of Jesus Christ. He lived the perfect life of goodness. And what did his life do? It blessed other people. That's what Good does abhor evil. Why? Because it brings pain and destruction and heartache. Hold fast to good. Why? Because it brings health and blessing and help to people. Does it make sense then why? Paul would write, inspired by the Spirit of God, who is the Spirit of truth, that the way that we love people without hypocrisy is that we abhor evil because it always hurts and damages, and we hold fast to good because it always helps and heals and blesses. That's why a sincere love without hypocrisy does those two things. Because what love always wants to do is help people. It wants to bless them. It wants to come alongside of them and lift them up and move them forward. So Paul says, what that looks like, what that kind of sincere, genuine love looks like is a love that abhors evil and clings to what is good. Now let me take it a step further. Spirit of God, please open up our minds to see this truth right here. The way that we relate To evil and to good impacts other people. That's the principle. Here's the addition. Even when the other people don't know how we're relating to the good and the evil. I want you to just ponder that for a minute. It's not just when people see us and they see us doing the good or see us abhorring the evil or on the negative side see us messing around with evil or see us not holding fast to the good that there's an impact. It impacts them anyway. That's what, it, that's what evil does and that's what good does. Even if the people don't know that we're doing the evil or the good, it has an impact. And here's the way that works we're celebrating Christmas time, we're celebrating the incarnation of Jesus Christ. God becoming man, incarnating. Himself as God into the flesh of man coming from heaven to earth so that we could see Him and hear Him and touch Him and be touched by Him. And then when we are touched and changed by Him, what He says to us, as the Father has sent me, so am I sending you. Here's what that means. You and I as followers of Christ are to be Jesus to the world. They are to be able to look at us and see in us and through us the truth about the character, the love of Jesus Christ. And what did Jesus do? He lived the life of perfect love. What did that look like? He abhorred the evil and he held fast to the good. And what did he accomplish by doing that? He blessed people. He helped them. He lifted them up. He transformed them. He took their destruction and made it life and health. And we are called to be the incarnation as followers of Jesus Christ to the world. We're to be Him to the world. So, here's what that means. Even when people don't know how we personally in our own private life are relating to evil and relating to good, even when they don't know that, here's what happens. When we are not abhorring the evil, when we are flirting with the evil, when we are kind of keeping it at about arm's length, kind of associating with it, or maybe even certain things participating in or pursuing, when we do that, What happens, what has to happen is that the reflection of Jesus in and through us to the world is damaged so that they don't see the Jesus, even if they don't know what we're doing, they don't see the Jesus that they're supposed to see and what's the payoff of that? They don't get the blessing and the help that they're supposed to get when they don't see the Jesus that they're supposed to see. So that it's as we abhor evil and hold fast to the good that we have the greatest impact. Even when people don't know that we're abhorring the evil and holding fast to the good, Jesus shines through us in a way that he doesn't if we're not doing that. And they're blessed and impacted when we live that kind of a life. Are you getting this? Isn't that cool how that works? You don't have to go out and trumpet your good and your aversion to evil. Jesus shines through you brighter and clearer and more powerful when you're abhorring the evil and holding fast to the good. And it changes. It touches the people around you in a powerful way it does. That's why love must be without hypocrisy Why? Because the way that we relate to other people to help them accomplishes that purpose when we abhor the evil and hold fast to the good. Now, that's point number two. Point number one, good and evil are God-defined. Point number two, how we relate toward good and evil impact others even when they don't know That we are abhorring the evil and holding fast to the good or vice versa. You see, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14. The author of Hebrews, in chapter 12, verse 14, wrote this. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. I'm going to give you two ways that you could translate that. One way you could translate it is this, that if you're not holy, you're not going to see the Lord. You're not going to make it. Here's another way to translate it. If we're not holy, the world's not going to see the Lord. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. And the first part of the verse says, strive for peace with everyone. So what's the context? The context is relationships with other people. So, the pretext is relationships with other people, and the text is if we're holy, people are going to see the Lord. I think, in part, that's the way. I'm not saying you shouldn't interpret it the other way but at least in part we should be interpreting that that as we're holy people are going to see the Lord in us and that's what the world so desperately needs to see. That's the charge that He has given us as the Father has sent me so am I sending you. Now here's the third point. Now this third point is the easiest to overlook and I think at times the hardest to apply. Easiest to miss, hardest to apply. I'm going to give a statement that's got a couple of kind of fancy words in it and there's a reason that I'm doing that and I'll explain it in a moment. The third truth is this. Christianity encompasses both assiduous action and fervent feeling. Christianity encompasses, includes both assiduous action and fervent feeling. Now the reason I selected those words assiduous and fervent is because the words that Paul used for abhor and hold fast are two of the strongest Greek words that he could have selected forceful, powerful words to make a very intense point in Romans chapter 12, the last half of verse 9. So I believe I'm being true to the text by using those forceful words, assiduous action of the Christian and fervent feeling of the Christian. See, to abhor means to loathe, to detest, to hate, to have an absolute intolerance for evil. To hold fast is a word that Pictures, glue, or two objects or two pieces of wood being glued together so that when they're glued together, you can't separate them. They're bonded, they're together, and we're to hold fast to good like that. We're to loathe and detest and abhor and have an utter intolerance for evil and at the same time we're to be absolutely inseparably bonded to the good. That's the kind of life that is a life of love without hypocrisy. But here's the truth that is easy to miss and so hard to apply so listen up. Listen up really carefully. I think the truth that Paul is driving at here is that Christianity is not just about what we do, it's about what we feel. Think about the words. Christianity is not about a set of moral actions only, Christianity is about our emotions and our feelings as well. Listen to it again. Abhor evil. Isn't that a statement of emotion? Isn't that a statement of feeling? How we feel about something? Are emotions related to evil? Absolutely, it includes that. That's why Christianity encompasses both assiduous action, relentless, continual, diligent action, but also fervent feeling. We're to feel a certain way about sin. Our feeling and our emotion towards sin is to be like God's feeling and emotion towards sin, and God hates sin. He ab- sin he loathes sin he has an utter intolerance for sin he is so intolerant of sin he killed his son to pay the penalty for sin that's how much he hates sin now so that i don't lose you here let me just push pause a minute and say something about me I'm preaching this with passion because the words Paul is using here are intense, passionate words so that in order to communicate it, it needs to be spoken like that. But don't get the impression that because I'm up here passionate about it and saying it so fervently that I got it all figured out because I do not. I do not. Too often there are areas of my life where I flirt with sin and I want to keep it close. I don't want to have an utter intolerance and abhorrence and loathing for it like I am supposed to have. But what Paul is telling us here is that what we so desperately need, remember Romans chapter 12 verse 2, we need to have our thinking renewed. What does that mean? We need to think about sin and evil the way God does. We need to be transformed in such a way that we view from God's perspective sin and evil and learn to loathe and hate and abhor and have an utter intolerance for it. So here's the problem. See, that's the thing that we can easily overlook, that Christianity includes how we feel about things like evil. But here's the thing that's hard to apply, hard to flesh out. Can you and I just, because we hear that, change the way that we feel about sin? (laughs) We can't. That's the problem. Now, there are certain sins that you because of the way you're put together, and because of the way that you've been raised and the circumstances of your life that you already abhor and loathe. There are sins like that, but here's also the truth. There are sins that are tempting to you and to me. Maybe I'll just say that for Brad. There are sins that I don't automatically loathe and abhor. There are sins that my mortal body wants to participate in, wants the fleeting pleasures of, so that what needs to happen in Brad is that my mind needs to be changed in the way that I think and feel about those sins. That's the struggle right there. That's the issue right there. So, here's one way I could do this. You just need to go out of here and you just need to make yourself feel the way God feels about sin. The problem is it doesn't work that way. You can't do that. You can't do that. But listen, (laughs) there is a way, there is a way for that to happen. It's not a little spiritual pill that you can pop and all of a sudden you get up tomorrow and no more do you have any struggle with the sins that you loved yesterday but there is a way it's a process you know what we you know what we so often do we we look at other people and we, the sins that we don't struggle with, that we abhor, we say, Why in the world can you not get it and learn to hate that sin? And then we've got our own vices that we battle in the mortal flesh to overcome. So, how do we overcome them? How do we have our mind renewed so that we think and feel? about sin and evil the way God does. The answer, and we've seen this in the last few Sundays, but this verse is central to the discussion, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. Here's the answer. Here's the way that we are transformed by renewed minds. Paul writes... And we all, talking about believers, and we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, what we need to do is behold the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? So that we can, here's the rest of the verse, be transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. It's a process. It's just a degree at a time of being transformed into the glory of Jesus that we are beholding one degree of transformation after the other, an ongoing process of sanctification that we'll be engaged in for the rest of our life. And do we do that by our own power? Absolutely not. Look at the last part of the verse. For this comes, what comes? This transformation as we behold the Lord and His glory. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit capital S, the Holy Spirit. So here's the way it works, church. The Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit that lives in us wants to take the truth about the glory of Jesus Christ. Where is that truth primarily found? Right here it is. He wants to take the truth as shown and seen and displayed and lived out in the person of Jesus Christ. And with that truth, as we behold it, as we fix our gaze upon it, as we do our part and we fixate upon the author and the perfecter of our faith in the person of Jesus Christ and do this. This is critical. We pray Oh God, I know that I think about some sins in a way that displeases you. I don't abhor and hate certain sins and what I'm longing is to have my mind aligned with your mind would you teach me to think about these sins that I struggle with in a way that you think about them renew my thinking so there can be life transformation so I can live for your glory Holy Spirit please take the truth as seen in the person of Jesus Christ and use it as I continually behold Him and His truth. Use it to change and transform me. That's the way it works. That's the way it has to work. He didn't give you another way. That's the way it has to work. You know what? All of this is really the truth that's found in Jesus. The Old Testament, or Jesus, He's the truth. He's coming. The Gospels are here he is, here's what he looks like, here's what he did, here's what he accomplished, and the rest of the New Testament is here's the commentary on the life and teachings of Jesus. It's all about Jesus. So you take this truth, and in it you behold the glory of the Lord, and as you do that, you pray humbly, saying, Oh God, I need some thinking of mine renewed to be like yours. God, please, as I continually behold the truth as it's found in the person of Jesus, change me from one degree of glory to the next so that I can live for your glory. Let me say that another way. Change me from one degree of glory to the next so that I can love people without hypocrisy as I abhor evil and cling to the good. That's the process. That's the plan. That's the only one that he's given. We need to fix our eyes on Jesus the author and the perfecter of our faith.